What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today on the podcast, Louise Perry and Mary Harrington discuss their opinion on whether progressiveness is at odds with feminism. Our host for this conversation was The Times columnist, Alice Thompson. I am going to introduce both our two uh, rather amazing feminists who are slightly younger than me. I won't say how much younger. Um, Louise is a writer and campaigner for women's rights who has been described as the most influential young feminist in Britain. She's a columnist for Unheard and a feature writer of the Daily Mail. She hosts Maiden Mother Matriarch, a podcast about sexual politics. And last year, she published this book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, a new guide to sex in the 21st century, which I have already given to my 20-year-old daughter with advice to read as soon as possible. Uh, Mary is a writer whose work has appeared in The Times, The Spectator, The New Statesman, The Daily Mail, and First Things, among others. She is a contributing editor at Unheard, and her new book is Feminism Against Progress, which is also fascinating. And I rather liked, actually, that that it's very personal and a lot about your childhood and growing up and how you arrived where you are. And the first question I want to ask is whether you can both define very briefly what a reactionary feminist is. It's a fantastic term, and it's very different from post-liberal, traditional, conservative I really like it, but I'm not 100% sure whether it means slightly different things to both of you or what exactly it means. So I don't know who wants to start, but maybe Mary, you should start because I think you may have coined it first. I did coin the term. It came out of a long running argument with a friend over the over the phrase post-liberal and whether or not it really meant anything. And in the end, it was it was a very lengthy discussion. I won't bore you with the ins and outs of it. But in the end, I conceded defeat on post-liberal. And I changed my Twitter bio to reactionary feminist, just from post-liberal feminist, just to see how long it would take for that to be noticed. It took several days. but And then by the time it was noticed, a, a number of other people had noticed it as well. And First Things wrote to me to say, could you please explain what you mean by, re- by this very arresting term, reactionary feminist? And I thought, oh, gosh, I better decide what I mean. <laughs> it's one of those terms... Every so often I'll come up with a term where I just like the sound of it and then, then I work backwards to what I actually mean. And it always turns out to be, I do actually mean something by it. But in the end, so so that's how I arrived at Reactionary Feminist. Um, and what I mean by it or what it turned out that I mean by it is that it's, it's the end point of a very lengthy 
set of questions I asked myself about whether it's possible to be a feminist if you don't believe in progress. I, I lost my faith in progress over a number of years in my 20s and just stopped believing that the world is on a never-ending upward trajectory. And, and I suppose the question I found myself asking is, is it possible to disaggregate caring about women's interests from this belief that we're marching ever onwards and there's a sort of ever-growing pile of progressive orthodoxies that you have to sign up to if you, if you want to be considered as belonging, belonging to this, the, the church of progress? At one point, that was just feminism, and, and there's a number of other isms that have joined that since. And well, I have, I have some questions about a number of them. But you know, is there a is there a doctrine, or is it is it more of a doctrine, or is it more of a vibe? I think I think that's where it gets more tricky. Um, in as much as it has a definition, I would say it's deliberately not universalist in the sense that I don't think there is a universal, um, universally applicable set of doctrines for what constitute what's what's self-evidently going to be good for women because these vary according to class they vary according to material conditions the whole thrust of my argument in feminism against progress is that much of what looks like progress in terms of women's rights is actually when you when you drill down into it very much more about about the technological than moral progress that's been as it were back rationalized and once once you start looking at it as as material conditions plus a set of back rationalizations, then it, it raises the question of whether or not whether or not everybody really needs to sign up for all of these. And I've come to the conclusion that no, it's possible to think in a much more grounded and relational and contextual way about what constitutes women's interests. And that in fact we need to do we need to add that perspective to our understanding of what those interests are. Because the same policy can be beneficial to women in one material and cultural context and obviously not in another. How do you feel about that, Lizzie? <laughs> Is it something that chimes with you or not? Did you instinctively, when you saw that hashtag, think that that's me? Oh, yes. I mean, mostly because it was funny. I mean, I think <laughs> I think the great power of the term reactionary feminist is that it, it's, it's funny and it's quite playful and it sort of preempts criticism because it means now that anyone who wants to try and use the word reactionary as a sort of grenade, they can't take the pin out. We, <laughs> we already we already sort of own the label. So I find it it's quite good fun in that sense. I mean, it's Mary's coinage. And I think that it yes, it, it is it is partly a vibe. I would say and I, I wonder what what Mary thinks about this. I would say that there are maybe a few points of doctrine which probably are important. The first would be that men and women are different in some quite profound ways. I think that's an, I think that's a very important element of reactionary feminism in physical ways, but also in psychological ways. On average, you know, there are there are lots of outliers in every direction. But I think it is true to say that men and women differ psychologically on average, and that's that's really fundamental if you want to say anything at all about the relationship between the sexes. I think also that. Um, Mary and I discussed this actually last week when she was on my podcast. The term conservative feminism, I think, is quite different because I think conservative feminism, to the, to the extent that that exists, has a very different relationship with the recent past. It's much more about trying to preserve the culture of, say, a few decades ago, you know, the 1950s stereotypically. Whereas I think reactionary feminism, I think actually what the project is, is if we are progress apostates, if we don't think that everything is just marching kind of upwards and onwards all the time, then that means that people who lived in the past, our ancestors, were not bad and stupid, right? Which means that they probably actually had some insights into um, the relationship between the sexes that we could learn from. And given that there are lots of ways in which our, our contemporary culture is extremely strange in technological terms and in social terms, there is value to be had in looking at other times and places and looking for the common threads and thinking if that is a common thread that probably and, and, and we're not imitating it that probably suggests that there is some wisdom to that thread so one example would be like every culture has marriage for instance 
of some kind. And that's, that's probably a good reason for that. And was there a particular reason, um, say, Mary, for you first, that you decided that this sort of hookup culture and the sort of casual sexism and the way men treat women, you'd had enough and that it was wrong and you felt that it was backwards, not not just progress in general, but specifically how you were being treated as a woman. Was there a, was there a moment you felt? I suppose my, my experience is, I'm, I think I'm between your and Louise's ages approximately, which is to say I, I came of age in the sort of ladette period in the noughties, where I suppose, I mean, hookup culture has got a great deal more extreme since then, as far as I can make out from friends who are younger, especially accelerated by online dating. But it was it was well it was sufficiently well established by the time I was in my late teens and early twenties that there was I don't remember ever absorbing the an idea from anyone that there should there should necessarily be any emotional connection between two people before they went to bed together and I suppose you know after after you do that a number of times it just you just realise that why am I doing this this isn't fun or certainly I, I that was the conclusion I came to you know I gather that there are some people for whom that doesn't apply but but. That was certainly how it was for me. But I mean, it was. A, I mean, my twenties were a, were a confused and chaotic and experimental time. I think on a number of different fronts. And I wouldn't say I, I went very methodically about testing heterosexual hookup culture to destruction. I tested all manner of things, including heterosexual hookup culture to destruction, and came to the conclusion at the end of it that, in fact, I really, what ended it wasn't a wasn't a grand philosophical decision. It was the fact that I fell in love and with the man who to whom I am now married and have been for 10 years and that, that wasn't as though that was an intellectual decision it was but it was a blessing what about I found you, it transformative. how did you decide well i went via radical feminism in my sort of early 20s and i should say that probably the first domino to fall for me was um discussions around gender identity because i was at an extremely left-wing university i went to soas and the sort of hyper progressivism was was all rage mm. and the first and I remember being taught in a lecture that actually the idea that humans were a sexually dimorphic species is just not true and I sat there age 19 or something thinking I think it is true and I didn't I didn't say as much because that would be social suicide but that was I think for me the first mm. moment where I thought hang on if that's wrong what else might be wrong and that was a yes that was a process that ended with me writing a book called the case against the sexual revolution which i didn't expect to happen at the time um, what i'm fascinated by is i think one of the main issues that we all really agree on across the generation so i am 55 we've 30s, 40s, is the porn culture. And I find it extraordinary that we've been talking about this for years and it's got worse and worse and we've been writing about it for years and nothing has happened. And I haven't really heard any men on the subject and particularly male MPs are very nervous about it because they then don't want to have to be asked whether they've watched porn, which is often why the debate gets stifled, I think, because it's only on women who've really picked it up. But do you feel that there is a case for porn at all online? I mean, do you, or do you feel it should just be blocked for the under... 18s and how liberal should we be because most of the discussion is just around children not watching porn but should we be allowing adults to watch as much porn as they do and you know why are we so relaxed about things like Pornhub? Mary do you want to answer that first? No I'm going to bounce this one to Louise because this is really your forte. <laughs> so I think the best argument for porn is not the sexual liberation argument. I find that very unpersuasive. The idea that people just ought to have some sort of human right to have access to the most sort of varied and depraved sexual acts you can imagine being performed by strangers at you know at the click of a mouse. I don't I don't find that persuasive. We lasted however many hundreds of thousands of years as a species without access to online porn. I think we can probably cope. The probably the strongest argument, and it's sort of an empirical argument, and I haven't yet been persuaded that it's true, but this would be, if it were true, this would be the best argument in favour of porn's availability, is that it decreases sexual violence. 
that there are men who, if they have access to porn, are less likely to go and assault women offline. I mean, if, if that is true, I really don't love the idea of having these sort of sacrificial lambs, women in the porn industry who are you don't sort think of it's up as red meat. Well, that's the big question. So it's an empirical question and it's just really, really hard to answer. I think it is unlikely that that is true because if you look at things like the way that porn has changed sexual cultures and sexual tastes so choking is the big example mm. or strangulation more accurately it used to be a niche within a niche you know basically you don't hear about it within the bdsm community which was extremely marginal and was mostly dominated by gay men now however it's on the front page of every major porn platform and all these shocking statistics about how many women in their teens and 20s have been choked by partners often without any kind of warning you know yes i think that is clearly come that's a fashion that has been cultivated by porn it is to some extent feeding off sort of latent sexual interest in both men and women but it hasn't just shot up in popularity spontaneously right it's clearly an effect of porn so i think the more likely answer to the empirical question of what what effect porn has on people is that it molds both male and female sexuality mm -hmm. to this hyper hyper capitalist mode mm -hmm basically, that we're, they, we all become sort of in hock to whatever the executives of MindGeek want us to be watching. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I mean, I know from teenagers, having talked to them a lot at university and done various articles on it, that the girls will say that they're being vanilla if they don't agree to various acts yeah. and that they feel that they are dull and boring and that they are expected to perform in certain ways. And Mary, do you feel that that, I mean, that's not just not progress. In many ways, it's very sad that women don't think about their own enjoyment in sex as much as what they're achieving for men. Do you think that's 
that's part of it as well, is that they haven't I got do. the confidence. I do. I mean, pornography is clearly a big part of what's what's happened here. I mean, it's like I think the thing which get which sometimes gets misunderstood about porn is that it's not it doesn't just it's it's not just a set of images. It's not a static thing. It, it has force and direction in the sense that a stimulus which you might watch and find arousing will wear off after a while. And so, anybody who consumes a lot of porn will start watching something relatively innocuous you know two two people at it before and then after a while that just doesn't do it anymore so they go looking for something more intense and they look, go looking for something more and more intense and the whole process eventually <coughs> inescapably leads people down these sometimes really dark rabbit holes and you know obviously there's there are then the performers who are incentivized and sometimes coerced into performing you know in order to create this increasingly extreme content but there's also there's also the the effect it has on young people in terms of in terms of how it shapes men's and women's desires it very clearly affects them differently in the sense that you know most pornography is produced for male consumers and it's produced you know with a sort of grotesque caricature of the male gaze and because it has this force and direction in into increasingly intense stimulus that tends in the direction of increasing violence, increasing objectification, increasing degradation, bluntly. And for any young woman who's exposed to even a small amount of this material, it's going to shape her imaginary as well. And inevitably, that means seeing herself from the man's point of view, which, you know, if you consume enough talk, enough of this material, means you end up just more or less unable to imagine yourself as actually enjoying it or, or only as able to imagine enjoying something which actually in practice, in person, is horrible and violent. There's often, I think the same young women will say that actually they should be allowed to wear what they want and act how they want and um, drink what they want. And I know, Louise, you've got a list of things that you shouldn't do as a woman if you want to stay safe, but that would be seen as fairly provocative by the younger generation. Do you think they have to start looking at this in a different way? Uh, yes, it has been seen as <laughs> fairly provocative. Although although I should say, actually, I have been amazed by the response that I've had from young women. I mean, the book has been read, as far as I can tell, by just about every demographic. But I wrote it really for young women. I wrote it really the book I wish that I'd had when I was 18. And it has had an enormous response from those women. And the thing that has really struck me as someone who is, so I'm now 31, so I was a little bit a little bit too old to be properly online. You know, we didn't get smartphones until we'd, we're just about to leave school and we're in university, which does hugely affect things like your exposure to porn. Whereas the younger generation obviously have grown up with it and they're the guinea pig generation. And it amazes me how, how cowed girls are, many of them by this and how many girls will, will, I say girls, I mean, you know, ages sort of up to the age of maybe 25 will say, I didn't know this. I didn't know that you were allowed to object to cultural casual sex. I didn't know that it was okay to say that actually choking really wasn't something you wanted to do. You know, that on the one hand, they're bombarded with the consent message, which says you must consent to everything. It's a yes or no, very clear sort of situation. But there's really no conversation about the huge grey area between you know legal consent and and virtue. And they find actually negotiating that space almost impossible. Um, because they don't feel as if they actually have permission to defend their own interests. So one of the things that I hope to do with the book and seem to have done, at least with some readers, is to to offer that permission to say, actually, it is okay to gatekeep your body and to prioritise your own comfort over that of other people. It's something that young women find really hard, not very often. And actually, Mary, you and I were talking earlier about the fact that although they, they will let people do quite a lot of 
often women and things in bed that they're not particularly comfortable with. They're very uncomfortable if they're walking down the street about wolf whistles or about any sort of mild flirting at work, that you have this sense that they feel they have to be extremely progressive in the bedroom, but outside the bedroom, they're very nervous about any interaction really at all. I've read heartbreaking stories of you know, really very young teenagers who who will consent to sometimes incredibly degrading things, or which sound to me incredibly degrading, just because that's the, that's the price of getting a boy to hold your hand in public. And then I'd be willing to bet that these are essentially the same girls, yes, who are deeply alarmed by what now gets called street harassment. And I, I've, I find myself wondering to what extent online dating, or the, the internet generally, is acting as an accelerant on both of these fronts, in the sense that, I mean, whether, whether, you're, whether it's because you're consuming porn or whether it's because it incentivizes incentivizes a culture of impersonal, always flicking on to the next um, sexual hookups, or whether it's because dating is always pre-structured by having been arranged through the internet, such that you never have a you never have an erotic counter, as it were, encounter in the wild. Um, I wonder. I wonder if that's part part of, part of making a contribution to to people's nervousness about experiencing an unsolicited approach. I mean, th- th- this is not to say that there aren't some deeply unpleasant people who follow you along on the street and hey baby, hey baby. And everybody, you know, any every young who's ever been female, teenage, well female, has had that experience, and it's not nice. And I certainly wouldn't want to minimise the fear that you can feel, especially if you're relatively small or on your own. However. Um, it does seem to be more frightening now in a way which, as you say, Alice, is is strangely at odds with what it seems a great many young women are willing to put up with of even quite unpleasant or, yeah. you know, re- really having doing doing quite disgusting things or things which they obviously don't enjoy more or less out of politeness. I mean, I've, I've never been on Hinge or Tinder or any of them because I was just the wrong generation, but I've mm. got four teenage children and they have in various degrees probably used them. And I would say what's interesting to me is people are prepared to go off with people they've never met before. Whereas they're more worried about friends or people they meet in nightclubs who I'd assume would be actually easier because they you might know their social group. There's some sort of moral obligation to behave in a certain way often. I think it might be displacement to some extent because I've, I've thought this a lot about the intense anxiety that women often feel about drink spiking. And there's a whole ritual surrounding drink spiking, which has been in practice, you know, long since my university days where, you know, you get little covers for your cup and you, you, when you go to the toilet, you leave it with a friend and all this sort of stuff. And, um, there's been so much research done on this and has, you know, for instance, people showing up in A&E and testing their blood and so on. Doing spiking is actually really rare. It does happen, but it doesn't happen anywhere near as often as people think. And, invariably what actually happens when people think they've been had their drink spike is they've just drunk more than they realized and they've just ended up being much much drunker than they expected it's 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 a kind of it's a provocative thing to point out but it is it is borne out by the data and i think what's going on with women getting very anxious about drink spiking is that they are quite legitimately anxious about being drunk in public with men they don't know which is the new um, mary mentioned the ladette culture you know this is a very new innovation the idea of women getting very very drunk in mixed company was not considered to be normal even sort of the 1980s this is like a 1990s innovation women do feel legitimately anxious about that and they know that they are vulnerable in that situation but to actually forswear drinking would be too much there'd be too much of a social penalty so instead that anxiety is displaced onto the drink spiking which is so i wonder if that's also what's going on with some of the um the other anxieties about things like catcalling while also you know going back to a stranger's flat is considered to be completely normal behavior i think there's a lot of confused emotion going on and you also feel that men are often natural rapists that there's a higher percentage than we realize of men who are more aggressive towards women why did you come to that conclusion in your book 
saying men and natural rapists is probably not quite how I'd phrase it. I would say that um, it is consistent across every culture that we know of on the anthropological and historical record that men are more likely to commit sexual violence and indeed all kinds of violence than are women. And there's a very clear age profile as well. It's a young man's game. It tends to be between sort of um, mid-teens and say mid-30s that you see this huge spike in violent offending of all kinds. And again, that's consistent across time and place. You know only about 5% of the prison population in the UK are female and that's not because of a conspiracy against men. That's because men just commit a, um, a lot more crime of all kinds, particularly violent crime. That doesn't mean, that really doesn't mean that all men are violent or potentially violent. There really is a bell curve and only a minority of men are to be found at the most aggressive end. But it also means that women don't know um, just to look at a man, whether or not he falls into that category. It's a kind of, it's, an, it's a mostly invisible thing. And I think it's something that we just have to reckon with and because it's not it's not going away. You know, we have to we have to take account of the fact that sexual aggression does seem to be a human universal and we have to manage it. And Mary, do you feel that um, there is a particular reason why the rape statistics are just so low on conviction and why the police don't seem to take it seriously and why the courts don't take it seriously? I don't know. This is not something I've written about the extremely low conviction rate. I mean, it, it seems it seems plausible to me that there are a set of assumptions, a set of publicly held and probably unstated assumptions about what's actually going on in a, in a lot of these situations. I think it's also in in a lot of situations just very difficult to prove to to a degree which would which would satisfy a legal test. Is it evidence of? institutional sexism i don't know i mean i dare say there are there are a number of policemen and members of the judiciary who think what well, she was asking for it and we can you know reasonable people of good faith can differ as to whether that's even an acceptable way of of framing the situation what i would say certainly is that the sexual revolution has brought us into a situation where women are to a far greater extent vulnerable to the kind of he said she said dynamic, which may have felt like something that a woman would have wanted to go along with at the time, but which then looks in the cold light of day like something much more abusive and much more exploitative. And as Louise said earlier, there's this huge grey area, which is just incredibly difficult to negotiate, particularly if you're in a stranger's flat, particularly if there's a power dynamic between you such that I mean, for, as as in the Harvey Weinstein situations, where you, you feel for other reasons it's difficult to say no. I mean, this goes all the way back to the 1960s sexual revolution. Virginia Ironside, whom I've quoted in Feminism Against Progress, makes the point very eloquently where she says, all of a sudden, armed with the pill, I'm paraphrasing slightly, there was no longer a robust reason ever to say no to a man, even if you didn't really want to have sex with him. And so she said on, on a number of occasions, she remembers she remembers going to bed with people because it felt more really out of politeness, because it felt easier to do that than than to kick them out of the flat. Mm. And it's and it's very difficult to see how how that can be for as long as sex is is disaggregated from the consequences of sex, women don't really have a robust reason to say no. Well, I mean if you're if, if you could get pregnant, you've got a very solid reason to say no, actually I'm I'm I don't know you from Adam and you can you can get out of my flat please. Or you know, I'm not even not even going to get myself into that situation, but but when you don't, then in, inevitably you are you are going to find yourself in more vulnerable situations unless you're just extraordinarily socially reserved in a way which is just not normal today. And you both celebrate marriage very much. Do you think that partly because you've been lucky enough to meet someone, or do you think that you've compromised in any way? to meet someone. It wasn't just romantic love. Emma Thompson said this week, there's no such thing as romantic love. And actually, it's all about finding a partner and working with them. Did it make a difference to you, Louise? Do you think that 
actually, do you feel like a smug married? Do you feel lucky? Or do you think that most people should be able to find someone with whom they can create a partnership? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I've been with my husband for almost 10 years. You might be able to hear him in the background. He's wrestling our son into his pajamas right now in the room next door. Um, yes. I mean, my view, I don't know if you remember um, a woman, who, I can't remember her real name, but a woman who came to be known as Princeton Mum, who wrote a piece in Princeton Alumni Magazine or Student Magazine or something some years ago about the advice that she had, a, I think, a daughter or a son maybe at Princeton at the time. And she had personally been to Princeton and she met her husband at Princeton. And she wrote an essay addressed to the young women of Princeton saying, now is the perfect time to find your husband because you will never again be surrounded by so many single eligible men. And, you know, <laughs> what it was like. And she was absolutely raked over the coals. And there were some very funny um, breakfast news segments featuring her available on YouTube, which I recommend people watching. She's great. Um, Princeton mum is right, you know, <laughs> Princeton mum is right. And I think that the the way that we conceptualise marriage now as being so much more a, a means of emotional self-fulfilment is a recipe for failed marriages, because that's just such a difficult bar to clear over the course of your entire life. Whereas I think if we understand, I mean, Mary, I'm sure is going to speak to this in a moment because she's got lots of great stuff about this in her book. If we step away from what Mary calls big romance mm. and think of marriage more as a basis on which to form a family, mm. you know, my argument is that I think if you don't have children, you don't want to have children, marriage can really be treated as just sort of a cherry on life's cake and, and means of self-fulfillment, but otherwise fairly meaningless. Mm. If you do have children, though, it is of enormous economic and social importance to be able to build to build your life on the basis of this partnership. Mm -hmm. And I think if we understood marriage in those terms rather as rather than in, in the sort of Disney princess way, I think people would fare much better. And Mary, do you feel that? Because you feel strongly, don't you, that Generation X don't actually put in the work, that it's there's a sense that you that they don't realise that it's quite difficult. It's not all easy. It's not all romance. It's not a fairy tale. Well, as I've, as I've argued in the book, some of this is down to the fact that it's no longer economically necessary in the same, you know, we're, we're no longer as economically interdependent, men and women, as might once, once have been the case. You know, we're all sisters are doing it for themselves. You know, we can all, in, in theory, earn our own salaries. And so there isn't, the, there isn't this sense that if you want to have a life together, you sort of need to stick together. And there, there isn't this, this sort of sense of being economically under siege in quite the same way. So, so that, that opens the space, rightly or wrongly, and some people would say this is a positive thing, um, for people to think of marriage as, as something more like a consumer good. The self-expressive marriage is the term that somebody else coined. The name escapes me now. I think it's a very useful term. It's, it's, it, this sense of a marriage is something which has to be perfect in every way all of the time. And if it's not, then you can end it at any time for any reason. And there was a, a very shocking, I thought, article that ran in the Atlantic last year. Um, of, there was a personal piece by a woman who called How I Demolished My Life. And it's, the, and it's her story of ending her marriage because she wanted to because she just felt, because I wanted to feel the wind in my hair, as she puts it. And she had two young children and a husband who was, as far as I could make out, was a good husband. And she just, she just blew it all up. And then she thought, you know, and well, what, why did I do it all? And, you know, why did I put the kids through all of that? And then she said, and she sort of says, well, because I wanted to. And I think, well, I, I'd have to hope it worked out for the best for her kids. But, you know, I, I wonder, I wonder how they'll feel looking back at that piece when they're grown up and everything that they went through in the aftermath of that. I mean, when it comes to, I prefer to leave my own marriage kind of as a black box because it doesn't just belong to me. And so it's not really, it's not really appropriate to talk about it on the internet. Um, 
even even with trusted friends. But but what I will say is that getting married means choosing one person, um, which means settling pretty much by definition. So it, it's not meaningful to talk about not compromising. That it just isn't. You know, everybody has at least one annoying habit, and I, I have countless annoying habits, and I'm infinitely grateful for for having for being blessed with somebody who's willing to put up with them. And and I think. Where I, where I come from in wanting to make a case for post-romantic marriage is in saying it's my settled belief that even though the, the apocalyptic the Greta Thunberg scenario is probably over, over-egging it slightly, you know, I, I, look at, I look at how much more unstable and more scarce and more really volatile the world is on so many metrics than it was when I was a teenager in the 1990s. And I think, are we, are we really so certain that we can rely on the kind of abundance that underwrites that sort of economic independence from one another into the future, such that it's prudent to teach our children that they don't have to rely on a spouse in order to be able to relate, to raise a family in safe and secure conditions. And I, I'm just not confident enough that the future is going to be an abundant one like mine was in the 1990s. I mean, my adulthood isn't that even now. The world has changed so much. I mean, in the last 20 years, we've seen how many economic crashes, how many bank runs. You know, we've seen war come back to Europe. We've seen, you know, climate change is here. You have to, you have to be willfully blind not to see that these, these things are shaking the foundations of you know, the, the very enabling conditions of progress. And under those circumstances, I think you, you have to make a feminist case for, if, for, for those mothers who want to have children, for being willing to try and find a way of back into solidarity with the opposite sex. Mm. Because going it, going it on our own, I, I'm just not confident that we'll, it'll be a world in which my daughter can do that safely mm. if she ever wants children. So I'm very much the generation in my 50s where um, I wouldn't presume on another relationship to talk about whether they're married or not, because you feel lucky if you have been married and we fought very hard for no-fault divorce and we are worried about you know, domestic abuse and women being trapped within marriages. And I can see your generation's view completely, but it is fascinating to me because I feel it's come full circle and, and I still feel uncomfortable about forcing... Um, another woman into that situation. I do know with Louise's book that a couple of women of my generation loved your book, but felt uneasy. Not the last chapter. Yeah, I've heard but that. But on the times. other hand, <laughs> I think with my children, I probably would still like them to get married because it is stability and it is stability for the next generation. What worries me is that so few families really, well, so few women want to have children. And do you think that is economic reasons or do you think it is because they haven't got enough stability or why why have generations now been put off having children particularly having more than one or two children say um, I've got four but I can see the people in my office looking at me as if I'm kind of rather extraordinary specimen for continuing to breed quite so much <laughs> Louise what do you think this is actually the subject of my next book that I'm working on at the moment so I will eventually have 60,000 words on the subject I think the economic account of it is overblown or is possibly just too short term so obviously the big factor is the pill you know just the fact that we can now sever sex from reproduction in a way that our ancestors couldn't is obviously the, the, the sort of foundation That's of the massive decline that, that we can decide when to have the children yes but it means that Fertility is now plummeting across the entire world, except with the exception of sub-Saharan Africa, which is likely to spell the... I mean, I think that, I think one reason why um, progressives should be worried about the birth rates thing, even though it sounds so blood and soil, you know, it has a kind of uncomfortable political resonance mm. as the whole topic, is because progressives are currently breeding themselves out, basically, 
the, the best predictor of how many children you have is how religious you are and how conservative you are. And this stuff happens pretty quickly. And we know that politics is partly determined by personality, which is heritable largely. We know as well that people tend to imitate the ideology of their parents and if they're taken to church and whatever, you know, this is going to have an effect long term. And what's happening at the moment is basically that people who are most exercised about things like women's rights and gay rights um, are having very few children and are, are basically likely to lose the war of the cradle at current rates. So I think it's something that we ought to care about if, if those are things that we care about, you know. I think that, yes, you know, house prices is a problem. Yes, poor sort of government policy is definitely a problem and I think we should change all of that. I think though that the, it goes back a longer way and it has a lot to do with the fact that we have basically destroyed the village. That's what modernity does really. You know, it it sometimes in very literal sense, it removes people from rural places and brings them to the cities, which have always been population drains, not only because of high rates of death by disease, but also because of lower fertility rates in the countryside. And it also has our economic and political systems degrade family networks because family networks seem to be, you know, expendable and, and, and old fashioned and silly. But actually we know that the more embedded you are within your family, the closer you live to your own mother, um, the greater the support that you have in your local area, normally from kin, the more likely you are to want to have children and want to keep, keep having children. And I mean, I don't blame a lot of young women in particular who look around and say, well, if I have children, I'm going to be completely on my own and I'm not going to be able to afford a house. And, you know, I can't rely on my spouse to stick by me and all of this stuff. You know, I can completely see why on an individual level that would seem like a rational decision. I think at the societal level, it is it is catastrophic. It is it is literally societal suicide to not promote families because that's the future in the end. And Mary, do you feel that actually women should reconsider work and work-life balance in order to have family and in order to help? Or do you think it's both a women and a male issue and that the men need to start looking at how they can have a family life and bring up children as well? Well, I think in practice, most women do reconsider work and family life when they have kids. Uh, it just It's just something which inevitably happens. My next door neighbour is a breastfeeding consultant. And, and before that, she was an NCT coach with the National Childbirth Trust for anybody who doesn't know what that is, which do, which runs courses for new, for expectant mothers, expectant couples, really, on how to look after a baby. And she said, from her experience, absolutely without fail, the women who are most likely to get postnatal depression in the follow-up meetups that they would have subsequent to all the babies arriving the, the women who were most likely to end up with postnatal depression were the ones who were certain at the, during the course that nothing was going to change in their lives. And it was, the, it was the, the, the expectant mothers who were most on board with the fact that everything was now up in the air and, you know, they were maybe going to have to rethink a few things about how life went that, that found it easiest to adapt. I mean, one, one statistic that I come back to a lot when I talk about this, I mean, for, for me, I was relatively unusual in that I've got a degree, I'm middle class, yada, yada, but I was just rubbish at every career I ever, ever attempted, um, all the way up to the point where I had a child in my mid-30s. You know, I didn't really have a career that I'd worked hard at and that I desperately wanted to get back to and that I felt was, was, a, was a difficult choice between that and and being being with my baby. Um, there was literally nothing I could think of that I wanted to do enough to want to be out of the house 12 hours a day. It was just unthinkable. And that's left me with a great, a great deal of empathy for those women who have jobs rather than careers. 
of which there are many. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are plenty of there are plenty of people who 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 pay the mortgage or pay the rent by doing something which isn't particularly fun, but it's all right, and you get by, and you know, you t- you have your friends at work and whatever. But it's a job rather than a career, and you could just as easily do something else. And when those women have have kids, they might not feel like the, it's a it's a terrible wrench to be away from their babies, and yet they're subject to the same policies as the women who who set the policies, who tend to have careers rather than jobs, and who who take it take it for granted mm-hmm. that you know, obviously everybody's got a thrilling career. Which, which they want lots of childcare so they can get back to. And and it just isn't the same across the board. That's just that that's just not the picture for everybody. Do you think women are very different from men in that way then? Because I do. don't assume that do. men find it very difficult to go out for 12 hours a day. Do you well, think they prefer to provide and they find well, that more satisfying than women? I think there are there's an enormous amount of variation, obviously, but to the best of my understanding, Physiologically, the the, dif- the difference goes down to the cellular level in the sense that pregnancy doesn't just create a baby; it creates a mother. It rewires your brain. It changes. It reorders you chemically and physiologically, such that you're primed to close attunement with your baby to a much greater degree from from before birth, really, um, than than the father of the baby, who will who will develop the same a, a similar level of attunement, but it takes time. And and it's just there have been enough studies done on on the on the biology of mothers and fathers to show that although they're similar and obviously there are many devoted parents of both sexes it just isn't the same at a physiological level and this and this applies across species this isn't just a human thing so it really isn't just a matter of sexism or stereotypes men men and women are not in, just absolutely not interchangeable and any more than the male and female of another species is interchangeable when it comes particularly to to gestation and to the period just around the birth of a new baby. Now, this isn't to say, obviously, that there aren't mothers who are just desperate to get straight back to work, or that there aren't, or that there aren't wonderful mm-hmm. fathers. And a huge amount of variation. Yeah, you know, that that should go without saying. And you know, when we try and sort of stuff everybody into a very narrow box, you can end up somewhere that's just not very helpful to anyone. But there are differences. And uh, there's a very useful piece of research done by Catherine Hakim about 20 years ago, who who looked at, at what women prefer when they have the option, whether they're women with jobs or women with careers or women with, with neither, where staying at home or going or going to work was concerned, you know, our children, when, when children come along. And she established that it, it breaks roughly 60% of mothers would prefer, well, roughly 60% of women would like a balance of home life and and work. You know, most of them don't want to be just stay-at-home mums all the time, um, but about 20% do. And about 20% are just not interested in either and would, would prefer to just be at work full time. You know, given the choice, that's roughly how it breaks down. 20% at either end and then, and then this great bell curve in the middle. And my, my sense is when I look at the way policy is developed for, for families, it seems to me that it's mostly created by and for the 20% who, who are just really focused on careers. And, and in, women have to fight really have to fight very hard for anything that looks ev- even like a balance between home and work and there's and there's just there's just no there's nothing there's no space for for the 20 percent who'd really just rather be at home at all and and it, it's surely been not beyond the wit of man or woman to to come up with something which more accurately reflects the distribution of of preferences yeah. that, that modern women have in a, in, a, in a in a situation where actually we, we really could do that I think it's a brilliant place to end, um, but thank you very much, both of you, for joining. I'm very looking, actually looking forward to your book, Mary, and uh, to your next book, Louise. And hope that we can continue the discussion and you can read both their books, which are um, coming out now. Thank you both very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. 
But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.